Your attention, please. The Thunder Mesa Limited, now leaving for a grand circle tour through the realms of Imagineering, Model Railroading, and Disney Trains. All passengers, board! Howdy folks, welcome aboard the Thunder Mesa Limited. I'm your host Dave Mee coming to you from Thunder Mesa Studio in historic Jerome, Arizona. And this is the show where we talk to all kinds of creative folks from the worlds of themed entertainment, modeling, trains, and Disney. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 10, and today we are excited to welcome back to the program Jake Johnson. Jake is a professional model maker for private clients and the filmed entertainment industry. He's also an avid steam railroad aficionado and a former senior dimensional designer for Walt Disney Imagineering. Jake is a talented model kit designer, working with me as partner in Crescent Creek Models. And this is Jake's second appearance on the Thunder Mesa Limited. We're thrilled to have him back for this in-depth discussion on the art of model railroading. We'll be talking with Jake right after this important word from our sponsor. This episode brought to you by Atencio Crump and Gracie, Undertakers. Caught in an unexpected shootout? Lost in a horrific mine accident? Hung by mistake? Or perhaps simply carried away by a runaway mine train? Whatever the method of your untimely demise, Atencio Crump and Gracie promise the very best in eternal rest. Our fine pine caskets are second to none. In fact, we're the last carpenters you'll ever need. Trust Atencio, Crump and Gracie for all of your final arrangements. Just across from Boot Hill in Thunder Mesa. To date, we've served over 999 uncomplaining customers. But there's room for a thousand. Hurry back and don't forget your death certificate. And now please give a warm Thunder Mesa welcome to my friend, Jake Johnson. Hi, Jake. Hey, Dave. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How are, th- how are things out there in uh, California? Uh, it's great to be here. I heard it was raining. Well, it's cloudy, a little overcast. Yeah. Uh, there was... I wouldn't call it rain, but but definitely that sort of moisture in the air. Okay. That... that wanted to wash my car, but didn't do a good enough job. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for coming back for a second appearance here on the Thunder Mesa Limited. It didn't scare you off with the first one, so it's nice to have you back. What have you been up to? What have you been doing? I have been building some tiny, tiny little N-scale models. That's right. For uh, a client's uh, layout. Mm-hmm. Uh Mining theme, which is right up my alley. Yeah. I didn't realize I could work in such tiny scales. Yeah. And then I've been uh, designing a track plan for a client, uh, giant uh, narrow gauge empire. It should be a lot of fun. Cool. 
So that's what I'm doing. So I, I'm getting a feeling that N scale is not your favorite scale to work in. Well, no, I'm, I, I'm getting through it. I'm getting through it. So I can't really, it's uh, taught me that I have a different set of motor skills than I originally gave myself credit for. Wow. So what is your favorite scale to work in? Well, we Do you have one. We've, or I, I, I'm a big fan of 164th or S scale. S scale. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, for me, it's, it's has the right balance of not being too big and not being too small. Mm hmm. Right. So you think uh, O scale how, is too big? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> sadly, I will tell you why. Okay, tell me. <laughs> o scale requires a lot of selective compression when it comes to structure design that you wouldn't have to do in smaller scales. And yes. you can take that, you personally or you, the O scale community, can take that as you see fit. Yeah. Uh, that's that's that's. Uh, one of the issues I have with O scale because layout size is layout size, and the roundhouse that you want in O scale isn't going to be the same roundhouse you're going to get in N scale. Right, right. Well, I, I I've always felt that the different scales are good for doing different things. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's depending on what it is you want to model, what kind of story you want to tell with your model railroad should really as well as, of course, your budget and your available space and your skill level and things like that, that should really factor into the scale that you choose. Because if you want to, st if you want to tell a story, for example, of a big, sprawling Class 1 railroad, you know, covering vast distances, uh, N-scale is great for that, you know? Yeah. It's great, you know, especially a modern railroad. Uh, if you want to tell the story of, say, Colorado narrow gauge, SN3 is probably uh, probably the best bet for that. The ON3 guys will argue with that, but, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's and if you want to do some uh, goofy, entertaining, uh, whimsical thing, then ON30 is probably a fun way to go. You know, N scale, you can model the entire length of a freight train or passenger train. Right. Modern proportion. And mm -hmm. that makes sense. And the HO guys are screaming now going, what about us? What about us? What's the best thing for HO scale? Well, HO is a good compromise, I think, between uh, N and O scale. If you, if, you, uh, if you want your trains a little bigger, but uh, still want uh, that, that level of realism. You know, in the size and length of the train, it can be done, but you know, twice the space. I think also for HO scale over N scale is you're going to find much more product available and right. the ease building these things uh, much more uh, palatable. Right, exactly. The availability of product is, a, if that's a concern to you, then HO scale is the, definitely the way to go. Well, I like I like this. This kind of goes into how I wanted to start this conversation. Is that uh, I like ON thirty because of those limitations. Because you have to caricature things, you know. And because I enjoy doing that, that's a part of the the hobby that I enjoy using forced perspective and things like that to to make the scene work and make it be believable. Now, you you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, forced perspective on model railroads and. Uh, and how that might relate to Imagineering, Disneyland, things like that. And um, because I think I think a lot of people think they understand forced perspective, 
but they don't understand it as as well as they might. So, what what do you what do you have to say about forced perspective? Well, forced perspective is a great way to add distance in a scene and mm-hmm. depth right. wouldn't otherwise get if you modeled it to scale. Mm-hmm. So that depth and those additional things getting smaller in the background allow you to tell a bigger story mm-hmm. because you're controlling the eye to look down that vanishing point off into the distance and it suggests much more distance in the scene than you actually have room for. Right. And so it's more of a story. Yeah. And, uh, so force perspective is that, especially when you're looking at train layouts and uh, Disney ride buildings that are limited in space. Mm-hmm. By having that space, by by using that force perspective trick, you can make your layout room look bigger. You can make the ride building interior look larger. Right. Right. What, what what's an example? Everyone knows Main Street, you know, the the the, right. the, the buildings, the, the the windows get smaller as you go up towards the top of the building, stuff like that. What, what what's another example of of forced perspective at, at at a Disney park that people might know? Peter Pan has got some great forced perspective mm. <clears throat> from different vantage points. Yeah, uh, streets that get narrower as you look on the wall, and mm-hmm. and you're flying over. Uh, the uh, the island yeah and as you fly the island you've got a tiny little island and so there's a constant change of scale in the Peter Pan ride and a constant vantage point change depending on where the scenery is built right it's quite fun and whimsical to see all these different scales and and forced perspective gags right it's, it's it's really artistically done too it's it's incredibly well designed and i think that's it not only the, the the track system and everything that's very popular that people point to but i think that is part of the charm of the ride and why people enjoy it so much it's just like it's it's a great little magic trick sure know? yeah and there's a lot of it there's a lot of the blending the force perspective in with the backdrop too as it just kind of goes off into the distance and that's a that's a whole art in and of itself that uh, a lot of people could apply to the model railroad world with the, the nice thing about the, here's the difference though um, in, in a lot of cases on, a, on an attraction like that ideally you're controlling the viewpoint of the guest you're you're turning you know that's what an omnimover does it takes you and points you in this direction and says hey look at this and then it turns you around and points you over in this direction and says hey look at that when you're creating a model railroad, it's much harder to do that. You can't really you can you can do little tricks to lead the eye, but you can't uh, say no. Don't look over there. <laughs> only only look in this direction. Uh, so that that's why you know with like backdrops and stuff, you shouldn't use mathematical perspective unless you can control the exact spot where someone is going to stand and look at it. You know, mathematical perspective is, is, is where things disappear to a vanishing point uh, along, uh, along uh, uh, lines and uh, instead use atmospheric perspective where things uh, get yeah. smaller relative. So the, the further things away are, the, the further things away are away from you, the smaller they get and the more uh, atmosphere is in there, sure. more sky color and stuff blended in. I'm talking a lot. This is your show.
you know, it's funny you should say this. I, I've seen Force Perspective, and you're always really curious about it. And and as you visit a model railroad that's got Force Perspective, you have to ask yourself, are you putting it in a place where you can look around and 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 see it from the side, from left to right, getting smaller and smaller, and kind of spoil the gag? Right. How many different places does it work for? An Omnimover mm-hmm. is cinematic in the way that it points your head at the things that it wants right. you to look at model railroad uh, you're kind of off looking in your own right little okay, i want to look over here and i want to look over here and so i think that you have to figure out how to control that force perspective in a way so that you can't see uh right. behind the curtain speak. that's a good uh, point so it would work it works in some places but not in others so if you've got like a a, a shelf layout which is only visible, only viewable from the front. People can only look straight on at the scene. Um, that's going to work a lot better than something that's on like the end of a curve where you can walk around and then see it from the side and the back, and that kind of destroys the illusion of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we've, done, we've got a spot on a club layout that I used to belong to, and we wanted some force perspective, not so much with depth, but with the trees so that the mountains look further and further away. Mm-hmm. The problem is the train was going through those mountains where the trees were smaller. Uh-huh. And ask yourself, are those smaller trees or how big <laughs> do the trees need that are close to the track? And as they get up to the top of the hill, they need to get smaller and smaller so that you create that, uh, that extra bit of depth. And, you know, smaller structures and smaller trees are one of the first few things you can start to use for force perspective on a model railroad. Yeah, but you can get away with a lot more with trees because trees do come in all different sizes than you can with structures because people know intuitively, you know, how big a door should be, (laughs) right? They know how big a building should be in order for people to be able to get in and out of it. So you can get away with a lot more with natural features like rocks and trees and things like that, yeah. I do the, that a little bit on the Thunder Mesa line, not with trees, but with rocks, with the rock carving. Like on the Big Butte, it gets, it gets it's smaller as you go towards the top. So even though it is very tall, it looks taller than it actually is. So, Speaking of rocks, yeah. you want to talk about yeah. co- colors for rocks? Ah, colors for rocks. Okay, so uh, years ago, I had a customer who lived in the lake. Well, his, his second home was in the Lake Tahoe area. Mm-hmm. And he wanted that Donner Pass Sierra rockwork look. Right. Well, to the untrained eye, most of that rock is gray. Right. With I speckles. Can't think, <laughs> yeah, with speckles. Yeah. I can't think of a color for rockwork any less appealing than gray. <laughs> Well, all kinds of things come into play too. Uh, what kind of light is it going to be under? You know, what kind of what time of day is it? What's the season? What you know, all of those things come into play when you're when you're talking about that stuff. Any kind of color. Right. And when you bring that model railroad gray rock color into an artificial light scenario, mm-hmm. once again, it's gray. It doesn't really vibrate or illuminate with any sort of warmth. Mm-hmm. I was in the Sierras on a backpack trip, and I tried to find every different variation of gray 
colored little rock that I could bring back in a backpack mm-hmm. so that I could see pinkish gray. Here's a greenish gray. Here's a yellowish gray. Right. And uh, here's a brownish gray. Trying to find all these little gray variations so that it's not just one shade of, of, of neutral gray. Right. Hey, um, I got some help from a, an Imagineer painter friend. And she suggested uh, if you're going to do the um, Sierra Donner Pass rocks, you need to add a little purple into your wash. Right. right. And I, I guess we should add to that in terms of rock coloring is a lot of people like to use a black wash on their rocks, yeah. on their structures. Black, as you well know, doesn't exist in nature. So there's got to mm-hmm. be a way to t- black and cut it with some brown, cut it with some white, cut it with some blue, cut it with something. It, it so needs to be either warmer or colder. It can't be neutral. Right. Right. But it needs to not be black. It needs to have some sort of variation. <laughs> shadows have a shadow color mm-hmm. that complement what you're going to be doing over the top of it. Right. So that's, that's, that's a thing. And then the other thing I see... Everybody goes to the art store and buys the tube acrylic that they want to paint their rock work. Uh, burn umber, burnt sienna, raw sienna, uh, the red oxide. Mm-hmm. Colors, instead of just putting on directly as a wash, need to be pre-mixed on the palette before you put them on. Because what happens is everything looks like it was spotted with the colors that came right out of the tube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that... that... I tend to get a little sloppy with that. I mix a lot of colors on the scenery as I go, but I have a lot of experience doing that and feathering colors together. And st- I have a lot of experience with a brush, with brushwork. Right. And not everybody does and knows how to feather colors together and, and make that work. So, yeah, you're right. I've seen that splotchy look you're talking about. It's like, oh, there's some yellow ochre right there, and there's some burnt sienna right there, right. Yeah. And it's not that yellow ochre isn't mixed with a red oxide before it's put on. Mm-hmm. And if you were to mix colors together you wouldn't see the telltale signs of i just shot this straight out of the bottle right or out of the tube whichever however you choose to, to paint it so so that's something that i think is really important um i guess we should talk a little bit about disney rock work and things like that you yeah. look at all the effort that goes into painting yeah rocks that you see at, at disneyland and yeah. big thunder he just got a whole new paint overlay a few years back. Yeah. I think there's probably some other experts if you've already talked to that could tell us what the set of variations of those colors are. Mm-hmm. You know, you you don't have you don't see a black wash anywhere mm-hmm. on those rocks. You see darkest of red all the way up to the palest of pinks and oranges onto the highlight surfaces. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a, that's an example right there of, of how all that stuff. Tying works. into the earlier conversation, too, about forced perspective, color can be used as forced perspective. If, yes. Uh, uh, that's a trick that I use on my layout. Um, the stuff that's in the foreground peninsula on the Thunder Mesa side of the layout is much more, uh, the colors are much more saturated. It's much, much darker, deeper reds. But as you get towards the back, it's gets more lighter tans and and more uh sky colors mixed in to kind of 
give it that look of, of depth and distance. And that is a form of force perspective too. Yeah, you're creating atmosphere right. depth. With- yeah, makes it look further away. Yeah. Uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours who, who worked on the uh, Big Thunder uh, rehab. <laughs> I don't know if he was joking about this or not. He said, yeah, we didn't have enough of a budget to paint all of the rocks. So we only painted up to, you know, a certain level. And then everything above that is the original, you know, 1977 paint job. And uh, we just that's just atmospheric perspective because the, the way the color has faded naturally in the California sun over the years. It's like, okay. <laughs> Required um, nearly as much visual uh, maintenance as as the lower areas that are closer to the guests. Exactly, so, right? Yeah. That. Yeah, that and the bird poop really makes them fade back into the distance. <laughs> the crows that come in every afternoon. They're adding highlights. Yeah, they're exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now I use India ink a lot. I use India ink wash on a lot of my buildings, but the reason I use India ink, by the way, is that it is not true black. It's actually ah. a red black. It's actually a very, it's a reddish black. And so when thinned down, it makes a nice wash, especially for wood structures. and gives it that silvery, silvery gray look. Some people use shoe dye, you know, different colors. Mm-hmm. So same kind of effect, but. There's some uh, alcohol inks that I've seen at the art store, and I've done this. I, I did this when I did the pilot model of the Disney Barn, and it was a. I picked up some red ink and some brown ink, mm-hmm. and I washed alcohol wash over the barn, so that it had a deeper concentration of red in the cracks and crevices. Right. Than adding black because I still wanted to preserve the sort of brightness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, of that. Yeah. Color and get get a dark red shadow as opposed to a black wash. Yeah. Shadow. If, you, if you look at old old any old artwork done with India ink that's faded after a while, it fades to kind of this warm red color from black. So have to check that out yeah. a little closer. Yeah, I have a lot of old artwork from those days that's faded to that kind of. Eventually, it disappears altogether, but it fades to that kind of warm red color. Um, you, what, you know, uh, back to the rock work thing, how do, you know, you talked about well, hiking in the Sierras and, and picking up different samples of rock. I've done exactly the same thing, uh, picked up different, which I use on the layout all the time, uh, chunks of rock from Sedona and Moab and, you know, Monument Valley and different places like that. I remember taking a, a chunk of rock to the, art, to the uh, paint store. I had a flat piece of sandstone. I said, stick this under the spectrometer there. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you call it, and match that as closely as you can. And that has become my my base color for everything. But, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, you start with a base color as red, where right. everyone working in plaster mm-hmm. is starting with a base color of white. Right. Okay. And so you have to figure out where your light you know, where this radiant light is going to come from, if it's going to come from the lighter colors that you put on, mm-hmm. or if it's going to come from the, 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 the white showing through the plaster because you've got, you know, you've got different concentration layers. of. Do, do you prefer, with, when working with plaster, do you prefer to, because this is an ongoing debate, I know with people that do uh, 
plaster scenery and, and plaster hydrocal structures and stuff. Do you prefer to do washes of thin washes of color on plaster or to go opaque with opaque paints on it? Well, I, I'm, I'm not going to help anybody out here because <laughs> I like to do a bright foam, which is a white gesso over the resin castings. Mm -hmm. And I like to washes over that every now and then those washes might get a little thick and you might think it looks like paint. Yeah. But I, I for washes. Um, one thing I know is that as these washes going on, depending on how you apply them, if you apply the washes a little too vigorously with a paintbrush, the pla the plaster crispness is going to uh, break down and you're not going to have your sharp edges. Right. And there's there's some magic there. Uh, the geodesic foam doesn't do that. You can scrub and scrub and scrub on that because they're resin castings. You're not going to have that problem, but mm -hmm. you, you really need um, some restraint when you are uh, brushing washes onto plaster. Yeah, because you will actually wash some of the high points away mm -hmm. while you're doing it. Yeah. And what I've seen is you can polish the plaster to the point where the paint won't penetrate it. Because it closes the pores, and when it closes the pores, the point the, the paint will no longer absorb into it. And then you've got to go back in with a color match paintbrush and, mm -hmm. and paint. You've got to brush out all those spots where you burnished the plaster. Yeah. So something you got to be careful with. Yeah. The other thing I might add is you've got to make sure that the gravel, stone, soil, dirt selections that you have are going to complement the colors you're going to paint your rock work. Right. And you can use one to inform the other, whereas, oh, I'm going to go get my dirt samples first, and then I'm going to paint to match my dirt. Right. Or you can get your dirt and paint it to match your soil, or you can choose not to match it. <laughs> and it kind of shows you might have some cool stone color in your plaster and you might have some warm decomposed granite in your rubble mm -hmm. and they just they don't they look like they came from a different place of the planet right so i'm really a fan of trying to figure out how to make your soil and gravel together with your uh with your rock work and that doesn't always work you might see some gravel that you like out in nature and when you put that on your layout and you've soaked it with white glue and water and it's gotten darker and it's in artificial light all of a sudden you're like this gravel is darker mm -hmm. than it used to be and so you might have to whitewash it or you might have to paint it so it, it's it's important to figure out those little tricks right so that natural products next to man-made artificial rock work is uh, is cohesive right and it's a tricky thing to do it's a tricky little balance um are you a proponent of sifting different different sizes of of, of, of rocks and gravel say say you go out and collect some in the field somewhere and you got a, you got a bunch and, and and do you sift it down do you get to different different sizes absolutely but i also don't let that stop me from just throwing the whole mix on the yeah. way it, it comes as a handful out of out of the unsifted bucket because I think you need that variation. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to control 
and you might have a talus slope that's got much larger boulders in it, and then you might need some fine road sand, mm, right. everything in between. And I want that fine sand for the roads and for all those little places to be separate from everything and not have to pick it out. Right. And uh, recently, uh, my girlfriend Christine has shown quite an interest in gold panning. Oh. So, uh, the, the tie-in here is that one of the gold mining supply shops that we went to has the giant screens that fit on top of a five-gallon bucket. Mm-hmm. And those come in different sizes right. from uh, or even uh, material over a quarter inch down to just ultra micron tiny. And I think on Amazon or, or anywhere else, you can probably get a set for about a hundred bucks. It's like, oh, gee, a hundred dollars. Okay, fine. Don't buy them. But I uh, get some kitchen screens. That sifting of, of sand and dirt and separation really is a big asset in controlling the way the rock works can be on your layout. So yes, mm-hmm. I, I have the ability to sift stuff out. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of with you there. I, 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 I'm actually a big proponent of just grabbing a handful and throwing it on because that's the way it is in nature, but you're right for roads and, 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 uh, roadbed and things like that. And, and fine sand. Yeah. You want it, you want a sifted, uh, you want it. I have like 30 containers, full of rocks and sand in different sizes, you know, that I've sorted out to different sizes and, and consistencies. But I don't, I find myself, I don't do a lot of sifting. I just look for the size that I want and then find it. And then, okay, well, put that in a bag and we'll try that out. But, right. But I'm, you know, I'm a seat of the pants kind of guy. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of like a little of both. Yeah. You got a note here, working from color photos and good artist paintings when making model choices uh, and, and information rather than copying other modelers. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point, an interesting topic. Can you, talk, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I hope I don't step on any toes here. No, go ahead. But you see a model railroad, yeah, and they've made choices to paint things a certain way. Yes. Rust up a certain way, paint a building a certain color, whatever. And then all of a sudden, that person becomes popular and everyone starts copying what that model railroad <laughs> artist right. did. Right. And I find myself, when I'm looking for color representation to kind of inform what I'm going to do, I want to find a color photo or I want to find a painting. Of something, and the reason I like painting is because if you're a good artist, and I'm, I'm just referring to good artists, I'm not referring to myself. <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking at the paintwork of a good artist, you can see how they control the colors and their trained eye. And the idea is to learn from their trained eye. Mm. Not model railroader, I hate to say it, is a great artist or painter. Yeah. But these guys that are good famous, knowledgeable, talented painters, there's a lot to learn from them. Yeah. And people need to look at photos at the same time they're looking at these paintings mm-hmm. to what they're going to do. And, and I think as, as an artist myself, someone who, who works with color and stuff all the time, one thing I, I think that 
a lot of people in the hobby or many people I've spoken to don't quite understand uh, because they haven't they don't come from an art background or a design background. They, they might come from an engineering background or, or, or something like that. And they're just learning this stuff is that all color is relative. It's all relative to the situation that it's in. I mean, there is no one boxcar red, you know, <laughs> okay. There is no, there is no one formula. Cause I get asked this all the time. What, what, what colors did you mix together to make that? Well, see, but it's not going to look the same where you are than it does where I am. Your lighting's different. All that's different. So it's actually, it's a very complex subject that people spend years, <laughs> years and years studying and mastering. Um, I try to break it down as simple as possible and say, okay, start with a basic color and, and, you know, work out in each direction from there, whatever it is you're doing. But yeah, there is no one box car red. There is no one, uh, you know, grimy black. There is no one anything. It's, it's just what looks good to your eye. So you have to train your eye and learn to trust that training. So that's, uh, and what you're talking about looking at photos uh, historic photos or contemporary photos of what you want to model. Seeing it in person uh, under real light is is very helpful. And uh, I, I mean, to your point, you know, someone once said to me that my rocks were too dark. They said they're too dark, and I said, why do you say that? Well, because you know, all the all the tutorials and articles I've seen seem well. You need to make kind of this light gray wash on the rocks. Is I'm like they're talking about Pennsylvania, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're not talking about Utah. Dave, I, I've got a great idea for an article or maybe a future video or podcast, and it'll okay. be 50 shades of boxcar red. <laughs> That's what we're going to title this one, 50 shades of boxcar red. That's great. <laughs> It's interesting about the craft paint and the hobby paint that's good for modelers Yeah, is that different color variation as opposed to the traditional artist colors, mm -hmm. all the color variation, you can pick up one bottle and go, there's my rust color, there's my gray weathering color, there's my yeah. dirty black color that maybe isn't black, and you can – rather than having to mix these colors on your palette, you can go to something and, mm -hmm. and use them. Yeah. I still find myself mixing colors because I can't be limited by the imagination of the paint manufacturers. I still need to find. That's a really good point. Don't limit yourself by the imagination of the paint manufacturers or the kit manufacturers for that matter. You know, go do, do your own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Learn, learn a little bit about color theory. That information is uh, readily available. There is probably 150 YouTube videos about it right now, even as I speak. Yeah. Learn a little bit. We need theory for model railroaders clinic podcast article i i think there's a, a lot to gain from that obviously we're hitting the surface but yeah. i think there's a lot in that especially when you are taking uh, a lot of people want that reefer yellow or uh, perfect boxcar red that they've matched a color chip to mm -hmm. and that color that doesn't look right in their model railroad room it's not right. faded doesn't show any dirt there's nothing to account for atmosphere mm -hmm. or, or or the fact that, that you've got this lack of light in your layout room and you still want that to look the way it looked in a photograph that you shot at noon. Mm -hmm. 
in your favorite railroad yard, it, it right. needs to be tinkered with. Right. Yeah. If you if you go to say uh, uh, Chama with a with a handful of paint chips and go and hold them up against the the box cars and the <laughs> and the and the stock cars and stuff out in the yard, you might find a good match, but then you still that's not the end. It's no, it's going to no. take some work to get it to look right. And one thing I noticed in Chama is obviously Fifty Shades of uh, Boxcar Red, but you've got right. a car that was painted this year. You've got a car that was painted last year. You've got right. a car that was painted 10 years ago. And then you've got a car that was painted with a different color red because they ordered it from somebody else. Right. Or some other, and the pigments aren't the same. Right. I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I know that some historians will chime in. Mm-hmm. Pigments aren't the same now that they were years ago for any number of reasons. I right. don't know if paint more sophisticated or, or maybe more toxic, and we've changed our formulas. Yeah, for one, yeah, for one thing, the paint now doesn't have any lead in it, and it ah, and it fades yeah. much more quickly in the sun than uh, lead-based paint does. So that's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's yeah the the whole art of. <laughs> color, color, color as it applies to model railroading. That's a whole topic right there. Um, let's talk about uh, the threshold of, of modeling detail because we talked about scale a little bit at the beginning because that kind of relates to that. So if you were to break it down into five parts, I think there's kind of a threshold of detail and locomotives and rolling stock to me would be number one because they hold the highest threshold of detail. Mm-hmm of any item that you put on your railroad. Yeah. Okay, they're they're built to scale. You've got tiny piping and wiring and everything that's gone into the tooling and manufacture of locomotives and rolling stock has the highest threshold of detail. I think followed by that, the second one would be structures. Yeah. I think structure is the second highest threshold of detail. And sometimes the detail on structures can be just as tight as a locomotive but then with structures the reason i would say number two is because you might carve something out of foam or plaster for a structure and you're probably not going to make a foam or plaster tender body for your locomotive so <laughs> well no probably not <laughs> so, so anyway, that's why and and in that category of structures you have a wide range of detail right on the materials that you have available and what you are trying to copy. So that would be number two. Number three would be uh, scenery. Mm-hmm. I think doesn't hold the same threshold of detail as structures. You are going to do things abstract. You're going to do things with detail. Things are going to be sharp or soft, depending on what you want to do. Right. And then the next one would be the backdrop. The backdrops, I think, should, in fact, carry a smaller level of detail so that the heroes of the show, being your locomotives and rolling stock, stand out. And I've seen – the reason I bring this up is because I'm starting to see a trend in photographic backdrops. Yeah. And I love-hate relationship with uh, the photographic backdrops in that I've seen them – cut right along the profile of the hills and they somehow don't have every pine tree perfectly cut out against the thing which would which would take forever to do 
the colors in painted backdrops that I've seen um, are a little too saturated. Yeah. There's no control over the light. And I know that there's a lot of guys out there doing some photo editing to try and make this stuff right. And I appreciate the fact that they're going to this trouble. But I find it distracting to see the sharpness up against the wall. Mm-hmm. What I really want to see is the locomotive in kind of its uh, right. know, rolling its foreground starring role. So while I'm not, uh, I'm not saying, no, don't use photo backdrops, you kind of have to figure out how much of it you're going to use. And the flip side of that is not everybody's a background painter, so you may be forced to use right right uh, drop but there's things i've seen people use atmospheric backdrops in their painting and they put very little detail it was uh they they were doing something along themed along the california owens valley nevada desert kind of thing and their painting approach was to make things look vast and distant so there was no detail there's a lot of atmosphere there's a lot of silhouettes and shapes yeah. of hills very pale violet colors and it was amazing and it worked because you're like wow it, you're going on forever you can imagine all sorts of things but there's not a lot of detail in that paintwork yeah you got to leave a lot to the viewer's imagination think and the and and see there's this tension there with with photo backdrops because the photographer they're trained to get everything in focus they want this to be sharp and crystal clear and when it's printed out they want to be able to see all the pine trees and all the detail and everything like that and that is not really what you necessarily need uh in a backdrop uh, <laughs> I've done a couple of photo backdrops, and what I did is I ran them through Photoshop and put a couple of filters on them to make them look more painterly, you know, so they're more like uh, impressionistic looking than crystal clear, sharp, uh, detailed. And it works a lot better, I think, with uh, modeled scenery in front of it, but that's just me. Are we talking distortion filters and maybe a desaturation? Is that the kind of thing? That you a little would... desaturation and a, 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 a filter like uh, paint dabs, which just breaks everything right. up into into spots of color. You know. Sure. Sure. Yeah, and you can adjust the the, the size of it, blur it down a little bit. Um, so. Yeah. Go ahead. I did a little experiment the other day where I wanted to figure out what the colors of water and rock work were in a particular scene that I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I took the photograph into Adobe Illustrator and I made a bunch of little boxes. And then I eyedroppered from the photo into the box mm -hmm. so I could color chart of what I wanted to see. Now, this doesn't work for everybody and not everybody's, you know, right. here but what, with the Illustrator. But what it did is it showed me a color palette to use to create this water, to create this rock work, to figure out what color bark looks like on a tree. And sometimes you really got to zoom in and make sure you pick exactly the right pixel to get that. Mm -hmm. But it's a very informative uh, lesson of what colors are you seeing on the screen or in nature or whatever, and what does that look like as a, uh, as a larger representation. Yeah, there's a lot more there than you think. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's not what you think. You think, oh, 
that's this dark green color. And then all of a sudden you zoom in on it and it's not that dark green color or you grab the wrong pixel. Right. Um, this kind of goes back to that whole uh, John Hench Imagineering trick where he liked to take giant four foot by four foot squares of a color and take them out into the field. And I'm sure that he stood back at varying different distances to see how those colors looked mm-hmm. in the park. Yeah. Uh, I think John Olson and, and a few of those folks made some full-size rock wall samples. They weren't, yeah. weren't natural, they were structural. And so here's the side wall of the castle. Let's paint it up in the shop. And then let's take it outside and look at it or take it down to the park and look at it. And they had a, a large sampling of what these colors were and what these textures were so that they could copy them. And so that that, that just kind of gets into some color theory, color selection. Hmm. Disney perspective. That brings up an interesting point about uh, if you're starting a new model railroad, a new you know, and you've got your space done and you're thinking about you know you've got your plan <clears throat> before you start in the scenery you should have your lights in whatever the lighting for your layout is going to be should come before you do your scenery because then you can make informed choices based on the lighting for it and you should try and figure out how to have those lights simulated in in some sort of concentration over your workbench mm. so that the paint you make of your structures or, or uh, match your workbench. Uh, when I worked on uh, the Shanghai Pirates of the Caribbean model, there was a lot of black paint, uh, black light paint being done. Yeah. And so they kind of needed a darker area and they needed some special light. And so they had a large bank of lights that were, they were able to roll around and project onto the uh, rock work and the model so that they could color match the the simulate the lighting so they could create the colors they wanted to and that informed the colors later on that they went to paint the actual ride so having that bank of lights available for them is really mm-hmm. helpful in an ideal situation yes get your lights in because it's going to be a lot harder to put those lights in after your layout's built yeah right <laughs> smashing things and dropping whatever and then and then uh like you say if you can figure out how to put those lights in your workbench mm-hmm. that's you yeah i was doing the backdrop first too before you uh, build the rest of the ideally i didn't do that but uh well, I, I think the backdrop is a is a never-ending part of the process i think you paint it and then you build up to it and you're like oh it's missing something well now you got to go in and add this or cover out something else up where the transitions don't work. So that's true. I'm sure for a lot of folks has been one of those things where they uh, will make changes. Yeah. I've changed mine several times in, in different areas to mostly because I changed my mind a lot about what's going to go there. It's like, Oh, well, no, I want to do this now. So the backdrop is wrong. So I need to change that. Well, so, you're doing something in the foreground that changes the context of what you want to see in the background. It's, exactly. It's, Retelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lance Mindheim. He's got a great book on model railroading as art and planning your model railroad. And yeah. talks a lot about color 
and color theory. He is a big proponent of using photos of structures and photos of pavement even for his, his and, and he's really done a remarkable job in taking aerial, taking aerial photos mm-hmm. of pavement. And while you may not want to take aerial photos of pavement, you should go on Google Earth or Google Map and look at the colors of a neighborhood that you're interested in. See all the different colors of concrete and rockwork and scenery and water yeah. and use them as a reference. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's not, he, he talks about all the different variations of color to use and how to desaturate the colors in a way to make them more atmospheric, give your layout some more variety, take out some of the did I say saturation? I'll say it again because yeah. I really believe <laughs> desaturating the colors. <laughs> and he talks a lot about um, avoiding uh, symmetry and straight lines and how you compose your track work against your backdrop so that you avoid that over-engineered look of straight track next to straight backdrops. Mm-hmm. And there's something really funny I learned from some... Uh, model train software and we all as Colorado narrow gauge modelers want our track all windy and curvy to get around the rocks and this and that and the other thing but what we fail to realize is that any railroad engineer wants the least amount of curve track right. they can on the budget they have to build their railroad so you've got to find that nice balance of where the track is straight versus where the track is curved on your layout so that it makes it interesting enough and still has the realism of, of a train going down a long straight track as we've all experienced. Right. So. Most, yeah. In even the most mountainous railroads, you can imagine most of the track is straight. <laughs> it's a long straight. And, and if you've ever been on a long rail journey, you know, it's long, long stretches of straight. So that's, that's it's- very realistic. It's two things. You want to choose as a railroad builder the shortest distance between two points. Yeah. And those curves wear the equipment out and slow the equipment down right. faster than, than that straightaway section. So so there's that. So that's uh, that's that's my uh, reference to Lance Mindheim. Uh, there's a lot more in those books. I think, Dave, you mentioned a book on one of your previous podcasts. Yeah. And every not have bought it. I think it was the John Hench book, and it was getting harder and harder to find as a result. <laughs> yeah, that was the Designing Disney book. Right. Yeah, sorry. Right. I, I think I started an eBay rush on that book, and I, I didn't mean to, but <clears throat> I guess I'm an influencer. So You made somebody <laughs> happy with selling the book, that's for sure, and probably made some other got it too late and couldn't afford it. So. Well, it's a great book, uh, Designing Disney by John Hench, uh, The Art of the Show. And it's all about, and he talks extensively about color theory. And uh, like you said, going out in the field with the, the big squares of color and design. And people say, oh, this is supposed to be white. And he would say, and he'd open up the book. Which white? You know, there's there's yeah. there's 50 shades of white here. Which <laughs> which white do you want? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's so true. Yeah, it, it it's what any kind of art training teaches you to, uh, if if it teaches you anything about color, is that um, don't make assumptions. 
Don't mm-hmm. assume that you know. Don't assume that you know the shape of a thing. Don't you? Because you know, you ask a child to draw a house. They'll draw a you know a box with a with a triangle on top. They'll put a stripe of blue at the top for the sky. The tree will be green. You know, the ground will be brown. You know, it's just that's what you know. And I've you see that too in modeling sometimes. Uh, the people assume rocks are gray, trees are green, sky is blue. You know, shadows are black. When in fact, none of that is really true. <laughs> you know, you're, there's 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 a lot more to it than that, and it, it is really just learning how to look at things and learning how to see them uh, to to become a better modeler. I think. That's right. That's yeah. right. I I think there was something I pointed out to you in a previous conversation, and that is, you should really make sure that if you are structures are really close to your painted backdrop that they're not blue structures with white trim or green structures with green trim that match your scenery because all of a sudden you lose the punch right colors of those buildings fade and not in the right kind of way mm-hmm. right and especially when you're in an artificial light situation when you're a natural light a blue building with white trim probably doesn't disappear the same way as it does in a model room. Well, we talked a little bit about layout and track planning for your space. What, what are your what are your top priorities uh, for you personally if you if you're planning a layout? What is it what is it you want? What do you what is your you know, what's what's non-negotiable? What do you have to have? Well, to me, you have to decide which is coming first, the room that you're building the layout in or the <laughs> railroad that you're going to build into your into the room that you design uh, and when you you design the room for your railroad you can control a lot of things i like to look at a room if it's already been predetermined and figure out what's the best way to walk in to this railroad where can i put a scene that is most dramatic i i had a situation where i did some florida scenery seal uh floor to ceiling scenery on a layout. And when you opened the door to walk in the layout room, that was the first place you saw floor to ceiling scenery. Now he had other entries into the room, but that was the most common. That's where we put the heroic moment of scenery right there. When you walked in the door, there was other places where we didn't get that. This particular layout was built in the middle of the room as opposed to being built against the wall. Mm-hmm. Distance after you opened the door and the sort of walk around path was between the, the door threshold and, and the bottom of the river. But there it was, multiple terraced layers of scenery and depth and smaller trees on top. So I think that kind of is a throwback to some John Allen scenery yeah. and, and kind of creating that atmosphere but uh, most folks that are really concentrating hard on building a nice model railroad want to build it against the walls because there's a chance for painted backdrops and adding that extra layer of depth. And that's what this railroad didn't have. It didn't have the depth mm-hmm. backdrops. And usually that means no windows and one door. <laughs> and which leaves you with this chilling challenge. <laughs> To build a model railroad. To build a model railroad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's finding that 
way to make that room, take that space and be able to walk into the room and have those dramatic scenes and then figure out how to avoid duck unders in, in my, uh, my opinion. I'm not really a fan of duck unders. And figuring out if the room is big enough to have nice peninsula turns uh, with either a reversing loop or a dog bone style loop, or if you're going to have a point-to-point railroad and yeah. whether or not that's you want to operate your trains. There's people who want to design trains for operation, yeah. layouts for operation. Some folks that want to design layouts for rail fanning, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like the, I, I call it the water fountain approach to, uh, to model railroading. You just want the noise of the water and the water coming down. Well, you want the noise of the trains to just go around and around and around a circle and, and, there's nothing wrong with that. I think a lot of folks want to kind of turn their brain off and watch the trains run around. That's one of my favorite things to do. It's, sure. it's, it's better than a fish tank. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of mental energy involved in switching. Yeah. And all of a sudden takes your model railroad and turns it into a job or a game play scenario, if yeah, you will. Yeah. I think of it as a role-playing game. Yeah, it's very much a role-playing game. And so you have to figure out if that's what's going to happen yeah. in your layout space. And it sure helped. It would sure help to visit a few layouts, operate a few layouts, and really figure out what it is you want before you make those choices. Mm-hmm. See, that's where we miss the local hobby shops. Uh, you know, because back in the day, back when we were kids... There was, a, you know, the local hobby shop, and oftentimes they would have a layout in the local hobby shop that, you know, some people that worked there worked on or, or, or people in a club uh, put together. And uh, you could go and you could pitch in if you wanted to. You could learn some skills. You could find out some things, that what you liked and what you didn't like. And that has gone away in a lot of areas. Unless you live in a big rural area, there's really not a lot of that anymore. I think those early hobby shops having layouts fueled the dreams and imaginations of guys like you and I. I don't yeah. know if you went to a hobby shop that had a model railroad oh, yeah. in it. And you and I are fortunate enough to grow up and see things like Knott's Berry Farm and like Disneyland, right. where this fantasy of days gone by railroading took place to influence us if you and i would have grown up in some other part of the country where the theme park access was not the first place you saw a train we might be inspired by something else that dare i say it is not as artistic or sort of whimsically or or, uh creatively inspired as some of these places where you grew up next to the railroad i and i don't have any fondness of any diesel trains that i've ever seen in my entire life Okay, teams <laughs> and uh, modes of transportation. So, I have a I have a, a semi soft spot for the Santa Fe uh, Super Chief. You know that uh, those those uh, F units uh, from that era. But th- those you know those were like the 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 fifty nine Cadillacs of. <laughs> Of locomotive, well, fifty-seven Chevys, maybe. I don't know. There's that beautiful classic streamline look. I like those, but uh, that's about it as far as diesels are concerned. That was my first diesel trip on a on a real train. Was to take that from uh, Orange County down to the San Diego Zoo for a field trip, and I remember those Super Chief mm-hmm. locomotive. 
seconds and then bam gone amtrak yeah and so while i enjoyed it it was it wasn't quite the same as that steam locomotive lionel engine that i had at home well a steam locomotive is alive i mean if you ever if you for example you go to durango the train leaves in the morning you can stand within you know a few yards of of the locomotive as it goes by and it is a hissing you know moving you can see all the moving parts it's, it is it's like a dragon you know it's like a living thing moving along those you know just it's and it's incredibly impressive uh, especially if you're a young child uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> or or think like a young child like i do it uh, it's yeah. it's it's just a, it's just awe-inspiring you know it's a, it's a hissing, steaming, living thing. Whereas diesels are kind of sterile. You know, let's be honest. Let's piss off all the diesel fans out there. <laughs> Maybe we should get back to track planning and layout space. Track planning like- and layout space. That's, you know, that's a great topic because you know, we could do a whole show on that. But what is your, what is your personal preference? Of, because I, I, you know, I have some pretty strong prejudices on track planning. Um, I think island layouts get a bad rap. They they went, you know, for, you know, in the fifties and early sixties, they were really ever. That's what everybody did. It was that was the, that was the fashion. Bowl of spaghetti, island layouts, and then everyone's like, no, 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 we need to do these around the wall, point to point, ultra realistic. Um, what, what what is your opinion on that? What do you think? Where do you fall? I like the painted backdrops. Mm-hmm. Okay, I. Yeah. Uh, Point to point is obviously the most realistic. Having done some operations, having to take a train and break it up, turn your locomotive around, put the caboose at the other end, push and pull through the passing sidings to turn that train around. While it's very realistic from a railroad perspective, it's kind of time consuming. And (laughs) there's a lot of uh, hand reaching into the scenery. Whereas if you've got your locomotive on a reverse loop, uh, or, or your entire train, you can turn it around on a reverse loop. If you've got a Y that's long enough for your entire train, yeah. you can do the same. Folks on a model railroad don't have Ys long enough to turn their entire trains, maybe just a locomotive. Yeah. And a... So I think that I want to be able to do those operations of all those point-to-point things. But then there's the soothing water fountain effect of I also want my trains to just entertain me by running past me and, and I yeah. don't want to lose yeah. having worlds in one space given the opportunity to do so. Right. And I, everybody I've talked to, oh, I just want to watch my trains run. And, and so you've created this little atmosphere. Right. I, 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 I'm a big proponent of scenic depth. So yeah. I like a combination of approaches, which is what I've tried to do, where you've got part of the layout around the walls, and then you've got peninsulas that come out into the middle of the room. No duck unders. You you can walk in and out of the whole thing. And uh, so it's kind of immersive. It surrounds you, but you can stand back and look at it too and see and look across real distance. And John sure. Allen, who you mentioned earlier, was a master of this. You know, this... The, you, you see the incredible depth in his layout, and he achieved that by having a kind of a peninsula. He'd have a peninsula in the middle, and then he would, the canyon went back there, so you could take photos because he thought as a photographer and an artist, 
across, you know, and you're looking through 16, 18, 20 feet, 25 feet of, of scenery from one corner to the other, you know, diagonally across. And, and you know, it, it bothers me. <laughs> Sometimes I see somebody, oh, we'll put a peninsula out here, and then we'll put a backdrop right down the middle of it. So we're going to slice that in half. So, so, so no matter where you are, you're looking two feet. You know, you're actually yeah. seeing two feet of scenery. You know, that's a, that's a design uh, concern I have of something I'm working on right now because I've done just that. And I think that what I want to do, uh, what I like is I, I want you to be able to walk all the way around the lab rather than seeing over the top. And I think I need to figure out if there's a way to prevent looking over the top of the mountains by bringing them up tall enough to, mm. to create separation. A view block, yeah. Block because I, I like the fact, kind of get back to that omnivore thing that you know you kind of walk around and you get to see all these different things and I don't want to see what the other scene is I, I I don't want you to tell me what's going on in the story before I walk around so I, I'm thinking maybe the design needs to be raise the scenery enough to force you to walk around to see the other scene taller trees taller mountains mm -hmm. hills. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, that's kind of what I tried to do. You know, there's the, the main peninsula of the layout, and it has a ridge of scenery going down the middle of it, which goes up quite high and, you know, draws the eye. But then there's also peek-throughs, too. You can look through over here, and you can look through over there, but you can't see everything all, all at once. You kind of have to go back there. Yeah. yeah. There's a few peek-throughs in Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland, and you oh, need I to know that. where yeah, but it's great because all of a sudden you're like, oh, look. And it just, your imagination is like, what's back there? And then you never get to see it again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What's back there is the uh, the uh, emergency egress from the ride and uh, the break room. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's actually back there, backstage. Exactly. Exactly. Some, some big buildings painted go away green. <laughs> I heard one time of someone's boat who accidentally went through the maintenance route of pirates. They were right in the middle <laughs> of the fortress scene yeah. where cannons are shooting the ship and the ship's shooting the fortress. And all of a sudden, right then and there, their ship uh, got rerouted into the maintenance bay. <laughs> And the maintenance bay is the model railroad equivalent of a passing siding. So I'm sure mm -hmm. that the maintenance bay, they were like, wow, bright lights and tools and nothing themed. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if their boat got stopped or it kept going and getting back on the ride track. But they got uh, they got shoehorned into the maintenance bay. Oh, that's great. And people are always, oh, I want to go back there and see that. And it's like, it's not that interesting. Yeah. Your folks that say they want to get stuck on the ride. Yeah. We got stuck on the ride where one of the pirates was talking and singing the same thing over and over and <laughs> over again. <laughs> and it made me say funny things back to them that I won't repeat here. But uh... <laughs> Oh, we're getting totally off topic. But yeah, somebody was really excited about um, they went to 
they went to Disneyland during the COVID, you know, and uh, when it just reopened, and they were bringing people in through the 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 basically the the employee entrance to Haunted Mansion, you know, which goes back through the crypt. This is backstage entrance, and they were all excited about this unthemed backstage entrance to <laughs> that bypasses it totally bypasses the elevator and it, or the I'm sorry the stretching room, uh, and uh, they just come out in the hallway. Like, wow, that's great. But they were excited about it. <laughs> Social distancing, you can't cram everyone into that elevator. That's why it was. Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't fill the they couldn't fill the stretching room, so they were bringing some of the guests in through the through the side door. What a story disappointment. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they shouldn't run it that way. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go back to Disneyland after the COVID restrictions are a little bit lighter so that I can kind of experience it the way I experienced it uh, as I have in many years past. And I don't know when that's going to come, but well, you and I should go and we should ride the train. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> you, you got a note here about bridges, width ah. versus depth on bridges. Okay. So many times when looking at the, the real railroads versus the prototype, Mm-hmm more length than there is depth to the bridge and the elevation of the track versus the elevation of the water. And I see a lot of times bridges will get designed to go over this deep dramatic chasm of a place that in most cases doesn't exist. Right. And, and I really feel like those bridges are more realistic when the water is a little closer to the bottom of the bridge or the, the to the rails rather than the other way around. It just looks it looks cartoony. When you've got a big tall short big tall bridge yes. over a deep yes. gorge, yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. You can, it's it's not what I would call a- aspect ratio in cinema, but it's about that same thing. How how wide is it to the height? And I. I tend to prefer the wider, longer bridge, given the opportunity that you can do that, than the deep, sharp canyon chasm with right. that short little... You want, the, you, want the, you want the landscape view rather than the portrait Thank aspect <laughs> of yes. the bridge. <laughs> what do you think of the bridges on the Disneyland Railroad? Well, you know, I'm, I'm excited because... Uh, one of your guests and, and mutual friends, Sam Toller, and myself had a lot to do with the Disneyland expansion uh, because of Star Wars with the bridge design. And mm-hmm. the first one that comes to mind is in uh, – well, let's back up. Let's talk about the original bridge in Critter Country Yeah, where you have two giant – uh, Ponderosa, for lack of a better description, logs and some X bracing holding up the railroad. Yeah, not a very realistic trestle bent. No, a lot of fun and whimsical. And uh, those are basically uh, probably some H column with some fiberglass tree wrap over them. Right. Okay. Uh, and, you know, in the setting, it, it's fine, but when we started to design the bridges for uh, the Disneyland Star Wars rerouting of the railroad, I brought in uh, a number of different pictures 
One was of the Hermosa trestle that you see, which is a how truss, and that's the first one that mm -hmm. you see when you go over uh, or when you go underneath the railroad into Critter Country. The bridge is wider than it is underneath. Um, I built a tiny version of it. Sam built a larger version of it, and I'm pretty thrilled to see that it made the cut, so to speak, as yeah. far as getting the trains in there and having something that is railroady and that also kind of fits the uh, the theme. Sam got a chance to build where they did not have a design, and I, I think he might have shared this with you. He got to build a bridge, and they just let him let him go, and he just designed this great bridge with all these logs all stacked up and uh -huh. different things and and that was one of the great places where sam as a as a imagineer designer builder got to build that bridge and then the imagineer draftsman copied sam's model mm -hmm. and then you go down a little further and there's another bridge and I showed them pictures of Walt's railroad at his Carrollwood home. And I showed them the five post trestle bends. And right. I said, what we need to do is we need to copy these five post trestle bends like there was on Walt's railroad. And they're like, oh, we want to use we want to use the logs like we use in Critter Country. And I thought, oh, this is a real missed opportunity to do something fun and railroad-like yeah. and not to that design and 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 they went for it because the pictures that i showed them uh, thinking about it yeah and then um not really sure what motivated the iron bridge that you see near big thunder with all the rivets and, and yeah. things on that i was not part of that conversation so i would just keep my mouth shut but <laughs> I think they were going for a slightly more modern look there, something more yeah more eighteen nineties rather than eighteen sixties. It it to me doesn't really keep in theme with the mining atmosphere, with the Red Rock Railroad atmosphere. It just screams modern. Yeah, with some rust, it doesn't really <laughs> portray what I think the Disneyland Railroad is. But you know, my vision isn't important. It's uh, Someone else's. They didn't ask you on that one. Oh, they well, they if I'm sure I might have said something, but it was quickly uh, quickly ignored. <laughs> well, uh, you know, this is this has been a great discussion. We we've covered a lot of ground on uh, color and uh, design and rock work and track planning and everything else. And you know, do you have a personal philosophy when it comes to uh, model railroading? I mean, is there what do you do it for? We all like to tinker. Yes. Okay. We all like to tinker. We like to design. We like to, as as an artist, take and make something out of nothing. We're trying to, in some ways, as a modeler, capture a vision or maybe recapture our childhood. No. Okay. And I think that that plays a lot into it. I, I look at gee, what would be my ideal vision of a railroad that I would want? And it, and it it's kind of torn between it, it really wouldn't be represented by a specific decade. But I love going back and looking at photos of 
the Colorado narrow gauge yeah. DNRG, uh, right after the building of it, say in the 1880s to 1900. Okay. Mm. Modeler, you're like, wow, they were using Lincoln pin couplers. So when did the knuckle couplers come in? Well, that's 1903. Okay. So that means that maybe I, I'm going to start splitting hairs. Do I start modeling in 1903 so that I can put knuckle couplers on all my rolling stock? Yeah. And then you realize, oh, gee, do I really want to do that? Or do I want to model the depression era of all the weathered, worn out, narrow gauge on up to, say, World War II? That sort of, we'll call it the transition era, but there were no diesels in the transition era of Colorado narrow gauge. Right. So, you know, that's appealing for its own reasons. And then I get kind of captivated by that post-war 1950s vision of what it was like to go to Colorado when everybody first had their color cameras, the war was over, and they were trying to sell and market the Wild West, as it were, Right. in all these different places. And the locomotives are getting balloon stacks. You go up to Silverton, and they're having gunfights at lunchtime. And there's giant cowboy silhouettes on the tops of the saloons. <laughs> and and they just really tried in that era to kind of, it, it was, I, I don't want to say it was before theme parks, but it's, it's right in that early era. They were trying to, gosh, there's, there's a word for it. They were trying to immerse you in the Western myth. Right. When you see these different things and it was also at a time when a lot of stuff hadn't been overdeveloped and so even though there was cars on the street in places like Durango and Silverton there was still a lot of it that had been unspoiled and we've seen a lot change in 70 years yeah. sort of uh, or uh, places uh, you know ghost towns have become more and more have fallen apart quite a bit more in the last 70 years yeah. and there's a lot Photos of ghost towns and old mining towns from the 50s. And some of those places are gone. So I, I, I kind of like that era as well. And I think there's some novelty and some whimsy to try and create these different things that existed when they're trying to create this sort of Western myth. I, I think that maybe my ideal railroad would be uh, a, a 1950s Silverton branch while they're shooting a Western. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Hollywood movie painted equipment or some period backdated equipment and maybe there's a railroad camp where uh, Jimmy Stewart is playing his accordion and and uh, and the cowboys and the bad guys are there or maybe Butch Cassidy is jumping off the cliff onto the top of a roof of a train which uh, takes some 60s but uh, we're not worried about timeline yeah at this let's point. let's not quibble <laughs> Well, that's that's really because that brings me to I have I have one Patreon question from Brian, and I know the answer to this. But uh, does Jake have a model railroad, and if so, what era is it set in? You just talked all about that. And the second part of his question is: uh, any tips from the two of you for someone starting a new layout? Well, I, I would say that ironing out what you want to do is very important you you might need an inspiration board and that inspiration board needs to have right next to it 
an inspiration board of available equipment. <laughs> right, so you can match what you yeah. want with what you can get. <laughs> right, because we, we we talked about that threshold of detail being locomotives and rolling stock. Right. And um, I'm going to go out on a, on a snob limb here and say that I really like my SN3 because someone has made exactly the models that get me most excited right in that scale. now they've also made them an hon3 and on3 but that's 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 beside the point there's models of the railroads i like now there's one railroad that i would like to see more models of and that would be the virginia and truckee and something larger than ho scale and preferably in brass or something a little more robust yeah than some offerings that are currently available because you've got ghost town not ghost towns but you've got fancy 1870s mining towns, beautiful coaches and mining scenes. And it's like, I look at that and go, wow, I want that, but I can't get it easily enough. Right. So uh, that's, that, that's where I kind of have to bring myself down to reality and go, okay, my inspiration board and my practically available board kind of need to be in parallel. Right. So starting out, that's that's the other thing, and then figure out, you know, is there a story to tell, and uh, start collecting the things that you want to collect. I, I have a theory that was crossing me uh, earlier in the week, and well planned, well designed model railroads that you can see either in pictures or in person are a gift. <laughs> They are a gift of one person's time, talent, resources, and space available. Well, I'm certainly not going to argue with you. Uh, and Right. And so <laughs> great model railroaders, even the good ones, have all of that together. And in some cases you say, well, it takes a village. And yeah, there's been other folks that have helped people make these model railroads. But it's a luxury of all those things. Um, I realized that the hobby manufacturers are taking advantage of everyone in the hobby by trying to sell them that vision and dream. And every box that they keep piling into their closet gets them one step closer. But they may not have the time, talent, dreams, resources to make all that together. But we're sure going to convince them that they can and keep selling them. Well, yeah. Otherwise, we can't sell kits, Jake. Shh. Quiet. Yeah, I <laughs> but but I'm saying that, you know it's a gift. Right. It's 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 a gift mm -hmm. of of uh, ideal circumstances to be able to have right. a good or a great model railroad. I I I agree, and I get asked this question a lot. Uh, what what would you say to someone who's just starting out? Um, my first response is always, "What story do you want to tell?" You know what? What story do you want to tell? What what excites you? What what is it you want to say? Uh, what is it? What period of history do you want to revisit? Because that's going to inform all your other decisions going forward. And the second piece of advice is, start small. Start very small. Start as small as you can. Start with one kit. <laughs> you know, start with a small scene. Yeah, a locomotive. Get a nice piece of equipment build a little diorama and and go from there because you'll learn all the skills and things along the way that you need yeah those, those skills are important and those skills are going to inform you moving forward because there's a lot of things in model railroading that aren't really appealing tasks right uh, i hate wiring for example 
I was going to throw that in immediately. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm not a great locomotive mechanic, so I've got to buy the best locomotives that I can find, right. or I should be buying, dare I say it, diesels that I find somewhat disposable that, that are mechanically right. sound and then just replace them as I, as they break, because I may not repair all of them. But mm -hmm. uh, Yeah. And yeah, that's exactly right. Right. So, so I said, you know, start small, uh, build something, finish it. Uh, you'll learn all the skills you'll need. You know, if you build a module, something like a two by four foot module, something that can plug into a larger club layout, something like that, or Fremo, whatever, that's a great, great place to start because you'll learn all the skills that you need to build a larger layout. You'll, you'll learn wiring, soldering, painting, scenery, all of that goes in there, except for maybe backdrop painting, unless you want to do like a, 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 a shadow box diorama or something like that. I think another thing to get started is to socially connect with other model railroaders. I'm not talking about just through Facebook. I'm talking about in your area where you can visit something tangible mm -hmm. so that you can see what they've done. Yeah, You might learn something because you're in a one-to-one uh, -one physical space as opposed to watching something on a video. Right. So there's there's clubs, there's modular groups, and there's people with home layouts. I, I, I built a number of pieces that have ended up on friends' home layouts because I don't have a home layout. And I, I find that one. the door... Yes, you have one. <laughs> yes, I do. Really nice one. Where you've left something, and yeah. so you know, it's like your 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 model children are scattered across the countryside. And... <laughs> there you go, sowing your wild oats everywhere, Jake. Jesus. So well, yeah, you got socially because I think that you get a chance. It broadens your horizons. A lot of model railroaders are very introverted, and I think they need to take advantage of social opportunity in model railroading it yeah. doesn't always uh, they don't advertise that but I, I think it's really important to have a friend and once again that's another loss of the local hobby shop that's keenly felt you know mm -hmm. because that was a place to socially interact with other nerds that were into the same stuff that you were into so that's our advice brian i hope that helps that's a lot to swallow. That was a lot to. <laughs> Anything else you want to mention while I got you here? Oh gosh, Dave. I want to see. I want to see Goldie's uh, Goldie's uh, Golden Room uh, and Red Light District uh, turned into a kit. You want to see that Beauty. as a kit? Oh yeah, yeah. With, you've already got the video on how to put the motor in, but that's going to be like, I don't think that's part, I don't think it's for everybody. But. That wouldn't be part of the kit. No, I, 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 I wouldn't do that as part of the kit. Um, for one thing, those motors are hit and miss. One thing I don't, oh, I, one thing I don't mention in the videos, I had to buy two to get one that worked. Ah. Yeah. So <laughs> buy in bulk. <laughs> buy in bulk. <laughs> Save. Uh, yeah, uh, but, um, yeah, that was a fun build, but, but yeah, just the basic, uh, structure would be, uh, I think it'd be a winner. Well, Jake, on that note, it's been great. Thanks for sure coming have. back and doing this and talking, uh, talking trains with me, uh, for, for a little while. It's really nice. We even snuck some business in there at the end. 
Yeah, which is it comes it comes as part of the territory. <laughs> All right, my friend. I appreciate it. Have a lovely rest of your day. As they say, have a magical day. All right. <laughs> and I'll be talking to you real soon. Sounds great, Dave. Thanks, Jake. Take care. And that is our show for this time. Thank you so much for listening. It's always great to sit down with Jake Johnson and talk trains. I will be back here in November with episode number 11 of the Thunder Mesa Limited podcast. Until then, you can catch me over on YouTube doing model railroad builds and how-tos on the Thunder Mesa Studio YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to this here podcast so you don't miss a single episode. And you can do that via direct RSS feed at thundermesa.studio slash podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are streaming. If you would like to help get Thunder Mesa Studios podcasts and videos on the air, please consider joining our Patreon campaign. Our patrons get early access and exclusive content for as little as $3 a month you can find out more at patreon.com slash thundermesa. And now, folks, I've got me a train to catch. Keep moving forward, amigos. Adios for now.